Hi, and welcome to your Owen podcast, Quick and Handy Tips for Veterinarians on the Go. I'm Dr. Melanie Barham, Owen Coordinator. Welcome to a very special Swine Ontario Animal Health Network podcast series on influenza. We'll be joined by many guests offering expertise from around Canada and the U.S. Dr. Krista Arsenault, lead veterinarian from the Animal Health and Welfare Branch at the Ministry of Agriculture, Food and Rural Affairs, um, as well as ex-swine veterinarian and Owen Swine Network co-lead, will be my uh, co-interviewer for these guests. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or on our website, www.owen.ca, to access the scholarly articles and links featured on the podcast. Welcome. Okay, I'd like to welcome uh, today Dr. Catherine Falewski. Um, she has uh, joined us to conduct a podcast uh, on influenza on behalf of the Owen Swine Network. So thank you for taking time out of your busy day today, Catherine, to join us. Thanks for having me, Krista. We'll start off with, if you could please describe your background, Catherine, dealing with influenza uh, regarding human health. So I am the public health veterinarian within the Population and Public Health Division of the Ministry in Health and Long-Term Care, and that means I've got responsibility for zoonotic disease prevention and control policy and programs across the province. As a result, I provide veterinary public health advice to both ministry leadership and health units on zoonotic in disease issues, including responding to outbreaks or the emergence of novel and potentially zoonotic influenza strains. In the seven years I've been with the ministry, we've responded to a number of these scenarios, including the emergence of the pandemic H1N1 virus in 2009, the first reported case of pandemic H1N1 in a turkey flock, which happened two years later in 2011. We had the emergence of a novel H3N2 strain in swine in the U.S. in 2011 and an outbreak of an H10 strain in an Ontario turkey flock. And we've also had cases of zoonotic transmission of swine influenza A H1N1 variant to an Ontario resident in 2012. And of course, we had the big H5N2 avian flu outbreaks this past spring. I'm also the co-chair of the Ontario Zoonotic Influenza Working Group, which is working on finalizing the Ontario Zoonotic Influenza Strategic Plan. Very uh, extensive background. What is the significance, uh, Catherine, of influenza with regards to human health? So influenza has been reportable uh, as a disease in Ontario since 1923, and because it's a highly contagious acute viral disease, influenza continues to be a major cause of preventable morbidity and mortality in Ontario. And influenza viruses are divided into three types, which are designated as A, B, and C, and it's influenza types A and B that are primarily responsible for epidemics of respiratory illness in humans. And it's estimated that annually, uh, influenza and community-acquired pneumonia account for 60,000 hospitalizations and 8,000 deaths, most of which occur among elderly persons. But there are groups of individuals who are at increased risk for influenza-related complications um, or are more likely to end up in hospital as a result of an influenza infection. And those include young children under five years of age, and especially those who are younger than two years. Uh, children between eight months and 18 years who have neurologic or neurodevelopmental conditions or are undergoing treatment for uh, various disease conditions for long periods, adults who are 65 years of age and older, and individuals of any age who are residents in long-term care homes or other chronic care facilities. Other groups also include individuals with underlying health conditions, and that can be anything from cardiac and pulmonary disorders to renal disease, morbid obesity, diabetes, cancer, and weakened immune systems, as well as pregnant women and Aboriginal peoples. In Canada, our seasonal flu activity begins as early as October and continues as late as May, but peak flu season is in a 10 to 16 week period 
that usually starts in December. In Canada, on average, between 500 and 1,500 deaths every year are due to influenza alone, and annual incidence rates in Canada range from 10 to 20 percent each year, uh, but can be considerably higher when we're in the middle of an epidemic. In addition, influenza also has an, a significant economic impact in terms of absenteeism and lost earnings. Influenza viruses can spread from person to person, primarily through respiratory droplet transmission, such as when an infected person coughs or sneezes near a susceptible person. Transmission via large particle droplets requires close contact between the person who's infected and someone they're about to infect because droplets generally travel only short distances, approximately two meters or so, before they settle onto surfaces. Airborne transmission can happen through aerosols in the vicinity of infectious people as well. Um, and indirect transmission also occurs when a person touches a surface and contaminates it with the virus and then someone else touches that surface um, and then touches their own face. However, it's difficult to assign sort of how much each of those different modes of transmission um, contributes to the true spread of influenza viruses. Most of the adults who are ill with influenza will shed the virus in their upper respiratory tract, and they tend to be infectious from the day before symptom onset to approximately five to seven days after symptom onset. 95% of virus transmission occurs within three days of that illness onset. But children and those who are immunocompromised or severely ill, including people who are hospitalized, can shed the influenza virus for 10 days or more after the onset of symptoms. What is the significance of influenza with regards to animal health? So there are many causes of respiratory disease in animals, um, and I think we're going to talk a little bit more about pigs today. Um, and one of those illnesses is certainly influenza. Among influenza types, only type A influenza viruses are known to infect pigs, and most of the influenza viruses circulating in swine are different from those that are circulating in people. Influenza, virus, influenza A virus is endemic in swine populations in North and South America and Asia and Europe. And the influenza virus genome consists of eight distinct gene segments, and the subtypes of viruses are generally described by two gene segments, the hemagglutinin, or HA gene, and the neuraminidase, or NA gene. Classic swine influenza infection was caused by the H1N1 subtype, which emerged in 1930 and remained relatively unchanged while circulating in U.S. swine populations for almost 80 years. But since 1998, swine influenza infections in the U.S. have evolved from a seasonal disease that was caused by a single and relatively stable H1N1 genotype to an endemic year-round respiratory disease that's caused by multiple genetically unstable um, swine influenza virus subtypes. And those include H1N1, H1N2, and H3N2. The emergence of the H3N2 viruses late in 1998 rapidly changed the epidemiology of the disease throughout the country. And between 1999 and 2001, the exchange of genes between the classic H1N1 and triple reassortant H3N2 viruses resulted in new H1N2-like and reassortant H1N1 groups. Between 2003 and 2005, human-like H1N1 and H1N2 viruses also appeared. And then adding even more to the complexity of that, the H3N2 viruses also showed a propensity for antigenic change. So clearly, antigenic and genetic variation currently exists in contemporary uh, H1 and H3 swine influenza isolates. And if you look at swine influenza virus isolates um, from U.S. swine in 2007 that were submitted to Minnesota's veterinary diagnostic lab for antigenic and genetic analyses, they belong predominantly to three different types of H1 clusters and one H3 cluster. If you sort of continue to see circulation, co-circulation of these three different or four different lineages, 
the emergence of additional reassortant viruses with unique combinations um, of surface proteins is likely for a number of reasons. One is the fact that pigs have cellular receptors that receive avian, human, and swine influenza viruses. Secondly, you've got a population of susceptible swine with no immunity to influenza, which is continually renewed. And you have the existence of swine herds in close proximity to both human and bird populations. Thank you for that overview. Could you explain for our listeners the connection between humans and swine with regards to influenza? So we've already said, I think, that influenza A viruses circulate among many animal populations. Um, and the primary reservoir for all influenza A viruses is wild waterfowl. But influenza A can also be found in other animal species, uh, including swine, poultry, cats, dogs, sea lions, and bats. And as I've already mentioned, um, swine cells have receptors that express sialic acids that can be receptors for swine, human, and avian influenza strains. And that facilitates cross-species influenza transmission and the genesis of novel influenza strains through a reassortment process. But I think in order to fully answer your question, we need to consider both potential directions of disease transmission. Not only direct transmission of influenza from swine to humans, but also the reverse zoonosis scenario involving transmission of the virus from humans to swine. So let me start with transmission from swine to humans. Human infections with animal origin influenza A viruses are uncommon, but they do occur. In the US, human influenza illness caused by swine origin influenza A viruses, which are called variant influenza virus, uh, virus infections, have been sporadically identified. In 2012, however, there was a large number of human illnesses caused by an influenza A H3N2 variant that was identified, and more than 300 confirmed cases were reported in the US from July through September. A smaller outbreak of the same virus was seen in the summer months of 2013, and in that case there were 18 cases identified in four states. Most illnesses caused by this H3N2 variant have occurred after direct or indirect contact with an infected pig, often among exhibitors or visitors to agricultural fairs. Limited person-to-person -person transmission has also occurred with this virus, and the severity of illness has been similar to that seen with seasonal influenza. If we look at more recently, just between February and September of 2015, the U.S. identified two cases of influenza A H1N1 variant uh, in the U.S. One was a fatal case detected in Ohio during April with a person uh, who had potential occupational exposure to swine, and a second severe case in Iowa was hospitalized in August. Direct contact with swine was reported. So it's persons who work in enclosed livestock buildings, particularly confinement workers, that have among the highest risks of becoming infected with swine influenza virus because their work involves close contact with many pigs, including sick ones. But if we turn that around for a second and look at the issue of transmission from humans to swine, there was a really great review article written by Martha Nelson and Amy L. Vincent on this topic that was published in the Trends in Microbiology Journal in March of 2015, and that was made available to the membership of the American Association of Swine Veterinarians in 2015. Our experience with the 2009 pandemic H1N1 strain served to highlight major gaps in our understanding of influenza A ecology and its evolutionary mechanisms. The article reviewed how a recent increase in influenza virus transmission and surveillance in swine has revealed that influenza virus transmission from humans to swine is far more frequent than swine to human transmission, and the importance that this has to seeding swine globally with a new viral diversity. Nelson and Vincent characterized the scale of global human-to-swine transmission as the largest reverse zoonosis of a pathogen documented to date. 
And if we look at it, in contrast to sporadic major pandemic influenza events that tend to last between one and three years, it's the human seasonal influenza viruses that are associated with annual epidemics in humans, and those occur in the winter and temperate regions. Estimating the full extent of human to swine transmission of seasonal viruses remains difficult, mainly because of major gaps that we have in our surveillance of swine influenza A viruses. However, a recently conducted phylogenetic analysis of a whole genome viral sequence data inferred a conservative global estimate of 20 different human to swine transmission events between 1965 and 2013. And those occurred multiple times on all four continents that conduct at least minimal swine surveillance. So that would be North America, South America, Asia, and Europe. But in the period since 2009, increased surveillance for swine influenza A viruses has revealed at least 49 introductions of the pandemic H1N1 virus from humans into swine. This estimate is also conservative due to the low availability of influenza A virus um, sequence data from swine in many regions. But definitely following the emergence and spread of pandemic H1N1 in humans, detection of human origin pandemic H1N1 in swine herds was reported in many countries where influenza had not previously been documented as an important swine health problem. One of the really interesting points that this review article makes is that it's differences in immunity between humans and swine that could explain, at least in part, why viruses transmit more frequently from humans to swine rather than in the reverse direction. So young pigs typically, typically live for only six months before they go to market. By contrast, adult swine workers are likely to build up immunity over time to swine influenza A viruses through exposure, and older humans in general may have at least cro partial cross-immunity to human origin swine influenza viruses as a, result, as a result of previous exposure to human precursors of the swine viruses. In addition, if you look at the high density of pigs in commercial settings, um, this also provides an opportunity for human origin viruses that are at least initially imperfectly adapted to swine to continue to transmit between pigs because the pigs are so close together. Um, and in the process, the virus itself starts to evolve a higher fitness. The co-circulation of multiple swine influenza A viruses within herds, in addition to human viruses, also may facilitate host jumps by providing more opportunities for viral reassortment. From the animal health perspective, then, the repeated introduction of human origin viral diversity, particularly in the form of new HA and NA proteins, has greatly complicated the development of effective vaccines for the control of influenza in swine. So for all the reasons that are outlined in the Nelson and Vincent article, keeping human viruses out of Ontario's swine herds is both a public health and an important biosecurity and animal health measure. Information on OMAFRA's website supports the importance of preventing movement of influenza viruses between humans and animals by providing the following recommendations. If you are sick with a cold or a flu, you should stay home and have someone else look after your animals if at all possible. If you're working around animals that are diagnosed with influenza or other respiratory diseases, you should use precautions, including wearing gloves and appropriate respiratory protection. Always wash your hands after working with or handling animals. And when handling manure from swine or poultry or spray washing livestock housing or vehicles, wear an N95 respirator mask. And finally, you should also get vaccinated for influenza every year. That provides a great segue into the next question that I have for you. Could you provide us with an overview of why vaccination is so important when it comes to influenza? The bottom line is vaccination works, and it's the best defense against influenza. A study has shown that the influenza vaccine between in the 2010 through 2012 flu seasons ended up reducing children's risk of flu-related hospitalization by 74%. 
So the flu vaccine effectively can reduce the risk of serious illness and death due to influenza. And the Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care's Universal Influenza Immunization Program is one of our most important public health programs. The antigenic characteristics of the circulating strains um, provide the basis for selecting which influenza strains are included in the annual influenza vaccine, and it does change a little bit from year to year. Serious reactions from the flu shot are rare, so the flu vaccine is safe and it's well tolerated by most individuals. You will see mild reactions, and those can include soreness, redness, or swelling where the vaccine was given, which can last up to two days. But once you receive your influenza vaccination, it can take up to two weeks to build up your immunity. And that's why we, are, we recommend that Ontarians get their flu shots early in flu season to make them as effective as possible. This year, for the first time, children and youth 2 to 17 years old have the option to get the vaccine through a nasal spray rather than injection for free. Children 5 years of age and older can get the nasal spray or flu shot at a participating pharmacy. Children between 2 and 4 years old can get the nasal spray or flu shot only at a physician's or nurse practitioner's office or participating health units. When flu vaccine first becomes available at the beginning of flu season, immunization of high-risk and priority groups is the initial priority, followed by influenza immunization being made available to the general public. And high-risk groups include persons at high risk of influenza-related complications or those more likely to require hospitalization, as well as people who are capable of transmitting influenza to those at high risk, which are usually healthcare providers. In Ontario, we've also identified priority groups, and those priority groups include swine and poultry industry workers. For all the reasons that we've already talked about so far, in 2011, Ontario's Chief Medical Officer of Health began sending out annual letters to both swine and poultry industry workers at the beginning of flu season, encouraging them to get their annual seasonal flu vaccine. That's so they protect themselves and their families against the seasonal flu, but also to keep human seasonal flu viruses out of our swine herds and poultry flocks as much as possible. Thank you very much. Are human influenza cases and influenza activity in Ontario tracked? Yeah, so from November to April, uh, the Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care reviews a set of indicators on a weekly basis to assess how the province is progressing through the influenza season. And those indicators include data from syndromic and laboratory surveillance systems, as well as health system utilization data. Currently, the ministry is actually piloting a classification system to describe influenza activity and support decision-making by health organizations, which is publicly available on the ministry's website. Over the course of the 2015-2016 influenza season, the classification system will continue to be validated for future improvements. The system basically describes provincial influenza activity according to a green, yellow, orange, and red color scheme. Green means that influenza-related activity is at low seasonal levels, and we don't anticipate seeing uh, significant increases in influenza activity in that week. It also means that we're not anticipating any significant impacts on the acute care or other sectors. And this is a good time period to focus on influenza prevention activities, including things like reviews of infection prevention and control measures, such as hand hygiene strategies and immunization of health workers, as well as clients, patients, or residents. The next level up is yellow, and this means that influenza-related activity is at elevated seasonal levels. So that means that um, in that given week, influenza is expected to increase as part of a seasonal peak in activity, or is on the decrease from a seasonal peak that has already happened. In that kind of scenario, we expect limited impacts on the acute care sector and other sectors of the health system, um, and that would be activity that is directly linked to influenza virus. 
organizations can also start to see increases in staff absenteeism rates associated with influenza virus. Um, and organizations at this point in time are encouraged to continue to focus on influenza prevention, um, as well as reviewing plans to ensure that they will have the capacity to respond to increased demand for influenza-related services. Next up is the orange level, and that means that influenza-related activity is considered to be at elevated seasonal levels and maybe reaching peak levels in the coming week. And in this case, impacts on the acute care and other sectors of the health system are likely to occur. Um, organizations, again, will see um, increases in staff absenteeism rates, and organizations may need to implement plans to increase their capacity to respond to the need for additional services. The highest level is red, and that means that influenza-related activity is at greatly elevated levels. So at this point in time, we definitely expect impacts on the health system. We definitely anticipate seeing an increase in staff absenteeism, and organizations may actually need to implement plans to increase their capacity um, to respond to the need for services. If you were to go to the Ministry's Influenza Activity and Surveillance website this week, you would see that our current status for the week of December 17, 2015, is green with influenza activity at low seasonal levels. You can see the information on influenza activity at both provincial and public health unit levels, um, as it's available at the Kingston, Frontenac, and Lenox and Addington Public Health Knowledge Management Division's Influenza Mapper tool. Uh, on that website, you'll see that influenza activity maps and projections are based on data that are reported through the Acute Care Enhanced Surveillance System supported by the Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care. And by clicking on the map, you can visit um, and see real-time influenza-related uh, activity in each health unit jurisdiction. There are also epidemic curves um, that summarize all the provincial influenza summary data that are available on the same page. Finally, there's also um, an additional report, which is Public Health Ontario, um, and their Ontario Respiratory Pathogen Bulletin, uh, which publishes Ontario influenza surveillance data weekly from November through April, and then bi-weekly for the rest of the year, and that is available on Public Health Ontario's website. Wonderful. And for our listeners, we will provide links to these uh, websites and information that was discussed throughout this podcast for you to reference on our website. On behalf of the Owen Swine Network, I would like to thank Dr. Catherine Valeski for joining us today and giving us the public health perspective on influenza virus. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me, Krista. Be sure to check us out on Facebook and Twitter, too, as well as our website, owen.ca, to access the scholarly articles and links featured on the podcast.